Alright, why don't we just say Andre, Lauren, James, because that's what I heard you say. <laughs> We're just gonna write it down in order. Alright. Let's try that one more time. Yeah. Welcome again to the Black Movie Podcast, where we discuss black culture through a cinema by reviewing and discussing black led films from a wide range of different genres and time periods. My name is Ryan Hinyard. I am Andre Barber. Lauren Booty. James Alexander. We are here today to talk about a movie that came out in 2019, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This movie is loosely based on the real story of Jimmy Fails, one of the main characters of the movie, and is a really gripping tale of gentrification, of identity, of history and place. And the reason that we wanted to talk about it for this podcast was a number of the visuals were really arresting, the story itself really delved into some topics that we don't see very often in film. It renders black characters in a particular way behind the lens that is really interesting and deeply thoughtful. And the movie takes a look at something that's happening specifically in San Francisco for this story, but gentrification is happening in major cities all over the U.S. And therefore, this movie has a little resonance even beyond the locality that it's built around. So just to get us kicked off, I kind of want to hear what you all's opinions are um, on the movie itself. What did you guys think? Uh, I thought the movie was great. Um, I was looking forward to, to watching this one. It was a, a missed movie from last year that I really wanted to see. I, I didn't really know anything about it. And it hit home in some ways that I didn't really expect going into the movie. So I left uh, pretty, I wouldn't say excited necessarily based on the content of the movie but pretty like emotionally invested in these characters and i I thought they did an excellent job so i felt like a little bit different like i thought it was a really good movie and i really enjoyed it i was looking forward to it when it came out and i was sad that i didn't see it in theaters it didn't totally do it for me like there were lots of things that i absolutely love about it but the overall package didn't work for me as much as i was hoping it would which you can talk about more about why but i do think it was I'm glad I watched it. Like, I do think there were a lot of things about it that I was extremely drawn to, particularly the cinematography and the music and the acting was amazing. Um, but there were a couple of things I would have liked done differently around the pacing and the overall time. Um, for me personally, I agree with that sentiment where I love the movie from a production standpoint and I love a lot of things that they did in the movie, but as far as the story went, it wasn't my favorite story out of any movie. Yeah, I I definitely think that the areas where the movie really succeeded was in blending a, a really intense realism of looking into his characters with a surrealist, romantic kind of view of what was happening. There, There's a little bit of oddness in everything that's going on that is taken pretty deadpan and just kind of, you know, rolled with. The The movie starts off with the soapbox preacher talking about uh, the the pollution in San Francisco Bay and how the the, the, the white people who are cleaning up uh, pollution are all in big hazmat suits. And meanwhile, there's um, black children there with uh, no protective equipment that hits different in 2020. Um, it, it definitely was one of those like, oh, this probably wasn't meant to made me feel bad about this, but it does. And and you end up with uh with Jimmy and Montgomery, your other main character, skateboarding into town because the bus doesn't show up. And the the cinematography for that that intro shot, including a lot of very, you know, like slow motion zooms uh in on the people that they're passing in the neighborhoods that they're passing, it like is was just like a really tremendous hook. It was a great way to see the difference in how the people they passed on the skateboard looked at them from like when they were in neighbor when they were in the outskirts where there were still black and brown people around, and then when they got more towards the Fillmore district where the the house and the, the house that the movie kind of rotates around is that you know, you start seeing the tech bros and um and a lot of the gentrifiers and the, the looks that they give them back as they're riding on the skateboard are entirely different and dripping with feeling even with you know just the music and the slow camera yeah one of the things i actually really loved about this movie was how well they shot a sort of dreamlike sense early on where 
there are there was all of these weird quirky things going on but you know it was still grounded in some realism and it's almost like it had that childlike wonder about the city where there was a certain like everything is as far as things going on so like everything is amazing but when you actually look at it there's all of this extra subtext to it and i really love the way that they did that yeah like the i like the your use of the word child like there because i kind of had that same feeling watching a lot of it like the visuals in a lot of cases the staging of the characters and the depth of focus in so many scenes actually made it feel like a stage play in some ways and they're standing against like a 2d backdrop and i really loved that that kept recurring throughout the movie because there was connection to like both that presentation of the film itself and also the play that gets produced later on like so much of it feels like the characters are staged they're in very specific almost unnatural stances at certain times or standing together in front of backdrops. It just became kind of like a moving play. And then at other times when they're moving throughout the city, the city's moving, it felt like there were layers of 2D objects. Like I was looking at a pop-up book. Like so much of the film looked like a pop-up book in a way that was actually really entrancing and really, really interesting. And you don't really get a lot of that in cinema, generally speaking, let alone cinema that you know focuses on characters like these ones. I thought that was really, really novel and interesting in addition to. I mean, I think the, what helped that a little bit, too, was also some of the music. Like, that whole opening sequence is amazing. It's stirring. It's energizing. The music in the background is entirely what drives you forward. And that's probably after that, like, it felt really plotting from then on out. Like, the whole rest of the movie slows down after that introductory scene, which I felt was unfortunate because so much of that intro scene is what got me, like, super revved up at the beginning. For what was going to happen next i agree with that i think that there's you you have so much emotion as you're witnessing that scene and you're desperately trying to figure out what the hell is going on for a while and i understood okay you know this is going to be a movie that's going to show and not tell me and then it decides to start telling you over and over and over again what they're trying to do and i definitely feel like it could have been stronger if it really leaned into that surrealism uh, for longer before kind of popping the bubble of what was going on. I, I think that the, the strength that it, the strength that it lent the rest of the movie was that you had a sense of movement between all these, between these different locations. And unlike in plenty of other movies, you know, they weren't jump cutting to, and then we were in the outskirts and then we were downtown. You always saw them in motion moving between worlds. And I thought that that was something that really gave a sense of place to everything they were going. You started to feel the distance about the place they were talking about, whether, you know, going to Jimmy's aunt's house um, in in the outskirts or Montgomery's home. Was it a nursing home or was it just like his, like his grandfather's home? I wasn't able to really parse it. It was his granddad's home. And uh, yeah, and being able to have that, that sense of, difference in motion and uh and some of the surreal elements get became unsurreal over time the 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 fellows hanging out on the corner as a sort of greek chorus was i i I loved that that idea and even though some of the most powerful parts of the movie i think came from interacting with that chorus it was very much something that i realized i was more excited about it when it was mystified than after it had been kind of broken down a bit yeah, it's interesting that the movie does open in that dreamlike state because as, as you mentioned, Ryan, once the movie sort of reveals what it's about, it feels a lot more grounded. Up to that point, especially that opening that we've talked about, it's very evocative. I, I was very much like, I don't know what this movie's really about. Like, I'm just trying to piece it together as things are happening that don't completely make sense. And then once we know what the movie's about, it's about that. And it's very much that is the focus of the story. Everything feels more realistic in a way um, than I think maybe the, the opening of the movie doesn't. And, and even once we get to it, a little bit of the ending of the movie sort of doesn't feel as grounded as the center does. But I would agree that the some of the pacing was some parts of it were, I thought, interesting as far as like, showing how far our places are. It made it feel really realistic. And then some of it is, okay, this is just slow for the sake of being slow. 
So I, there, I think there were some pieces in the middle that could have been tightened to make the story hit the moments it was trying to hit a little bit harder. Yeah, like I think this would have been a really solid 90-minute film instead of two hours, but I also think it would have been an incredible and maybe one of the best 30-minute films I'd ever seen. Like, if that had been at all possible, I think it could have been done. I will say, like, the the points you both brought up about space is really interesting because if you're not from San Francisco, you probably lost a lot of that sense. You have the sense they've traveled, but you don't really necessarily know how far they've traveled. If you've been to and around San Francisco, you have a better sense. And I imagine if you're from San Francisco, you deeply it like it deeply resonates with you, right? The movie is supposed to be a love letter to the city and the areas around it, and that feels like it comes true. I always got the sense that they had moved far, but interestingly, a lot of the film is also really confining. Like there are so many long, narrow shots, and so much of the time, Jimmy is framed by the house whenever he's in it, or even when he's outside of it, even when they're in other parts of the city, it's very much a long, narrow frame, and he can't break out of it. It's oddly confining, which I think matches the way Jimmy feels about, like, his living situation before he gets to the house. Um, and it matches, like, how he feels stuck in a box of various sorts. But it was particularly interesting because you're in a city where you're thinking that if you're creating a love letter to a city, you want to see more of it. And you never actually got to see that much of it at any one time. There are very few sweeping shots that you're used to seeing in movies, right? There's no high level bird's eye view shots as you're coming and seeing all those things that filmmakers just sort of like luxuriate in because it's cheap and drones are easy to get access to these days and all those things. Those are entirely missing. And you're basically watching the movie inside Jimmy's box. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the limitations that they had being an independent film. But that said, I want to revisit a point that you were making earlier, talking about how it seemed like this would make a good 30-minute film. Originally, it was supposed to be an independent short, but when they were doing the Kickstarter campaign to raise money for it, I think Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fall, when they were doing that uh, Kickstarter campaign, I think it was Danny Glover who actually like saw the script and uh helped them get more funding and more backing for it and so i could see a situation where this was supposed to be a 30 minute movie and ended up becoming a you know a two-hour movie because you know they had all this extra money and they could do it and really take time to draw out some of the drama there but uh with that said I think that another thing that they did well with that money, as we've all kind of talked about a little bit here, is the way that they shot it, particularly the their use of different camera lenses and the aspect ratio. Because I don't think this is a traditional like two, three, was it two, three, five aspect ratio? I think it's, I'd have to like actually like uh, go back through and review some aspect ratio things. But I want to say that it was uh, like 185 or something like that. But I'm probably completely off because I haven't looked at that stuff in a while. But yeah, it's like everything that they did visually from the color to the aspect ratio really did to even lens choice in some places. Because it seemed like they went with a much wider lens to uh, add some really nice distortions. Everything especially early on in the movie, went to serve like this feeling that Jimmy has a dream of this house. Like th this house is everything he wants in life. And there's a fantastical element in that too. Uh, so it was one six, six. I thought it was interesting that you brought up that Danny Glover was involved with making the movie kind of getting, making it bigger as far as the actual production of the movie. Um, and the fact that he's in this movie, but I didn't really feel like his character added nearly as much to the movie as the movie's time gave him to add. Like, I, I had a feeling that there were some key moments that his character, you know, said something particularly poignant or made some sort of connection. But there were a lot of scenes with him that I really felt like could have just not been in the movie and ultimately not changed that much of the story they were trying to tell. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like it was a waste of Danny Glover, who is an American treasure. Like, just a delightful actor, wonderful person. I want him to be my grandfather. Like, I need more Danny Glover in movies, not less. And if you're going to have Danny Glover 
in a film, let him be Danny Glover and like let him act and really have a role that actually means something. And in this case, I felt he was mostly just there for another character. So it's not just the two of them. It's not just Jimmy Mont, right? He becomes kind of a, a foundation for Mont. And it does create juxtaposition between the two of them, but it's still not as, as a robust a character as it could be. Well, he's getting too old for this stuff, we all know. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. I think that one of the things that I wanted to uh, zoom in on, because I, we've talked a lot about the setting, and we've talked a lot about uh, about the cinematography, talking a little bit more about the characters, um, I know that... So Jimmy, our main character, our titular last black man in San Francisco. Before you get into that, do you think that he's the titular character? Because I, I might have an argument for that. Oh, no, like, I, I think that it's designed to be, I think we're like, it's actually Mont. But it, at least in terms of, like, there, there's a whole argument there about Mont viewing himself as, you know, as an individual rather than, you know, or a theatrical device, um, as he kind of uh, presents in the movie. Mont himself is really fascinating. He's he's played by Jonathan Majors, who's also in the new uh, the new series Love, Lovecraft Country which is getting a lot of rave reviews and I'm is still on my backlog, but he does a really wonderful job of playing this eccentric, you know, somewhat, somewhat neurotic uh, young man who's walking around constantly recording the things that he sees in the city, um, recording the people, you know, make, taking drawings of, of the spaces that they're in. When he hears someone say something, he's, you know, he starts practicing the line as it would be delivered. And those things all kind of, knit together later on when he produces the play. Jimmy is so hyper-focused on saving this house and on taking care of this house and his identity is is built into the pride that he has for his his former family home. And and there's also uh at least at least to me, a, a palpable sense of avoidance um from Jimmy about like wanting to avoid the the experiences that he went through as, as as a young man, it comes some of the plot points in the movie. You start finding out that he experienced homelessness at the early on. Um, I think it was Mike Epps. Was that Mike Epps, the comedian who was driving the car? Um, yes, his, his uncle. Was that right? Yeah. So so like Mike Epps pulls up and Mon goes, "Hey Jimmy, isn't that the car you used to live in?" Which is just like a really fantastic line to be able to communicate about the instability that Jimmy's had for. Uh, for housing, you know, we learn about his time in a group home. We learn about issues with, you know, his parents and things. And every time you learn more about his situation, his attachment to the house seem like it's built into this childlike wonder in the beginning and the, like this, you know, dreamy, fantas fantastical attachment. And it starts to take on a little different color after going through those different situations. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I thought that the characters played off each other really well. Their connection carries a lot of the emotional weight of the movie. And there are places where, you know, I, I, I had to step back and go, this is a really interesting rendering of black male friendship in this way and, vul and vulnerability between the two of them as they're going, as, as they're going through all the stuff in the story. And I very much wonder how this would have been different if that relationship wasn't the core of what was going on, but it's, it's so intertwined with everything in the story. I don't think it's something that I could imagine the plot working without as much as it works. Even outside of them, the characters that the story surrounds them with are also very strong. We touched on it briefly, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, the guys that were on the corner and their interaction with those guys, we talked about his uncle, but also his dad. His dad was really interesting to me. And the way he uh, talked about the house throughout the movie, uh, his aunt was also another character that I thought to be really, really engaging. But to me, the two most fascinating characters in that movie were the real estate agent and Mont. And I have a feeling that everybody in this chat really loved Mont and that we're about to have a huge conversation about him. But I just want to draw attention to how it always seemed like Jimmy and Mont had this weird opposition to a lot of the people around him. 
and that also contributed to that uh sense of a sort of fantasy land in the early parts of the film so i mean i'll add on to that to say like i agree the side character is really interesting even the ones that they that like jimmy interacts with for a couple of seconds like the naked man at the bus stop or the women on the bus like at the end those are still really interesting meaningful connections he's having with entire strangers and some of them are they're all oddly familiar even if he doesn't know them and even if it's a slightly contentious conversation like what he's having with the woman at the end but with the guy like the naked guy at the bus station it's just so very relaxed like hey like they're two odd people in an odd city that is kind of leaving them behind and they recognize like a certain something in each other right like there's there's understanding and knowing of that other person even if you didn't really know them that i thought was really interesting and they kind of got to that with the realtor who's played by Finn Rock, who I love Finn Rock. He's one of my favorite actors. He always plays a weird, slimy kind of character for the most part, uh, but he's very good at it. So uh, he fits that role perfectly. And he starts off like talking with them. He went to a different school than they went to, but they've played each other in basketball or football. I can't remember which one. And, you know, he even says, like, but I'm from here, right? So, of course, he should be the one to sell the house and things like that. Like, he tries to create that that sort of, like, sense of we're one and the same, but fails to do that, really. And it's an interesting juxtaposition between him and Jimmy, the one who has all the all the things that San Francisco promises one should have and the one who doesn't have any of it, right? Even though they're both from here, um, which I thought was fascinating. I will say for Mott, like for me, Mott carries this entire movie. And if he were not there, the movie would not really be worth watching in the same way. He's just singularly compelling. And it's not, most of it's like him being carried by majors, right? Like it's just a really wonderful, emotional character to have. I find him far more compelling than Jimmy, <laughs> to be honest. Like I really wanted more of that. He's really just like, Everything about it, him practicing like his greetings in the mirror, like the ways that he's heard the the guys downstairs talking is like hilarious and heartbreaking and relatable and weird. I feel like there's a constant background tension of I think Mom is in love with Jimmy, but Jimmy's in love with the house or the idea of all the things he doesn't have. And like that by itself is heartbreaking. Like he kind of doesn't exist in the real world, but he's still commenting on it all the time. Like he's just truly a fascinating character. And it was just wonderful to watch. Like, it's not nearly as good without him in the space. Yeah. Mont, Mont is just really, just a really, a really fascinating character. And I I felt really frustrated by Jimmy. Like, I was, you know, like annoyed with him in the early and early middle parts of the film. Even though I, I saw where his arc was kind of building to, it wasn't grabbing me. But Mont was such a compelling character that Mon's love for Jimmy was a thing that made me want to care about Jimmy. And that's an incredible thing to do in an acting performance is that your performance is so good that the way your character feels about, about a different character is transmitted to the viewer. It was just insane that it was that good. I think that a lot of the metacognitive nature of how Mont viewed the world and that he was constantly recording everything that was going on. He was you know, taking note of things. And you could just see in the way that he watched the conversations unfold, you know, him kind of thinking about how these would these would play out and whether he was right, you know, whether he was going to be ready to write his play. I I definitely wish that the play itself would have been in a little different place in the movie, I think, because I think the 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 falling action from there was just kind of really hard to hard to keep up with. It went. It, it was it was it went really too slow for both of the movie and then went really fast and I really just wanted to have more time with Mont reacting to the revelations of things that come in the second half of the the, the second half of the movie. Uh, one thing I want to mention about the characters is I think Mont, like everyone else has mentioned, is the most interesting character of the movie, but he might not be my favorite character of the movie. And this may just come from nostalgia or whatever, but I I really liked James Fails Sr. It just reminded me of so many people that I knew who had very similar sort of outcomes. At some point, they had some sort of success in their life. Um, it didn't work out. Seeing him in his, I guess, 
public assisted apartment or whatever the circumstance was making his burn DVDs. Like so much of that just spoke to so many people that I knew in my youth that I immediately connected to that character. And then when, when we see him again later in the movie, sort of reconnecting to the little bits of his youth and his adult life that he was really happy in seemingly, it gave me some feels in a way that I didn't expect. And I think that's why he might be my favorite character, even though he's barely in the movie and like he doesn't really move the plot or story in any real way. But I just connected so much with, with his character. And, of course, his suit. Um, the, his suit was on point, And I wish that when I am that age, I can wear a suit like that. I think you're required to, by virtue of being a black man in America, you're literally required to have a suit like that in your closet, if not to. Yeah, on our 40th birthday, we're shipped a pair of grilling sandals, and then at 55, you get the suit. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. One of the things that Ryan said that kind of struck me was uh, talking about the Mont's play. And I don't know if we want to get into spoilers quite yet, but I felt like that was the most appropriate time uh for it i actually uh loved the placement of that play because i felt like it fit all of the action that happened prior to it where it was very sudden and in addition to it being very sudden it felt it hit all of the emotional beats of the movie to me perfectly and just kind of just was like the perfect capstone for just the movie. It's like the perfect, uh, actually more appropriately, it's the perfect climax to it. Where it seemed like everything just kind of got laid out. And, you know, even though I loved the timing of it and some of the things said in it, it, it really emphasized a lot of what I didn't like about the movie. And it, at times it seemed like it was trying to talk about too much. You know, we had, you know, talking about gentrification, we're talking about the black community and what it was like for the black residents as opposed to what it's like for the white residents. We're talking about uh, social media We're you know, we're talking so about so many things that, it's, that are happening with culture right now that I felt like the uh, movie just reached too far in a lot of ways. You definitely have one of those. It's because y'all be on the it's because I'll be on them phones moments. Um, <laughs> it was like, um, it was like, okay, okay. I, I get it. You, you feel strongly about, about social media. Yeah. I will say about the play. Um, I didn't expect the play to be about that. Like that was not the outcome that I anticipated that whole thing to be, which to me kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. At least that one component of it. So, like, two things for me there. One, like, I hadn't really thought about that part of, like, the... I mean, I, ta- I, I thought about all the many themes in this movie, which I want to talk about in a second, but, like, the play itself actually kind of made sense in my head as, like, this collage of all the different themes in the movie because it was written by Mont, who spent the whole movie just picking up bits and pieces of other people's lives and putting them onto a page. Like, that was Mont collaging all of his observations about the world into one space. It makes sense coming from him and it probably makes sense in his head, even if it's disjointed, if you look at those things individually. So if you think of that as him essentially doing an act collaging, it makes some sense, but it is a little overwhelming, especially in review as a microcosm of the film itself. But I do like overall agree with Andre. Like there's a lot of different themes that were going through the entire film. Like if you read most of the reviews, they kept pointing out the, Love Letter San Francisco, which I'm like, I got, but that wasn't the strongest theme in my opinion, nor was it the one that I actually cared about the most. There's um, the gentrification piece, which it basically is hitting over the head with from the very beginning. So that was obviously there. I do very much resonate with that because it's an issue I feel like happens in Ipsy right now. Like it's been ongoing for years, the gentrification of this town. And I have lots of feelings about that um, as a black woman who grew up here. But the other ones, like, I thought were more interesting was, like, the struggle with identity in terms of culture and geography and family and inheritance seemed really more compelling for me, as well as, like, those stories that we tell ourselves that our family told us to get by in the hard times. And I won't go too much into that before we get to the spoiler space, but, like, those all felt far more interesting. So I'm curious for you all, like, what what were the, what was a the theme that you would, like, 
pin your hat on as the most important theme of this particular film? So for me, my mind immediately goes to the gentrification, but it felt like I had a tough time actually picking out themes because of how jarring the change was in the middle of the in the of the movie because like the whole tone of the movie shifted very quickly um even before uh the incident that led to the play at the end of the movie but easily gentrification is the main theme but like you could pick out so much other stuff that I've I had notes before of like all the different themes and I can't remember where I put them, but like yeah, there's so much stuff that like you sit down, you watch the movies, like oh yeah, that's a theme. I think the movie, like you said, Lauren, hits you over the head with gentrification. It seems like that's the clearest point they were trying to make. What sort of got me is maybe one of those, the last lines, not quite the last line, but the conversation on the bus towards the end of the movie with Jimmy and the two women of you can't hate it unless you love it. Like the, this movie seems weird to me as a love letter to San Francisco. Cause to me, it very clearly embodies that line. Like I felt like the creators loved San Francisco and also hated San Francisco at the same time and struggled with how to portray both of those feelings in throughout this whole movie. So did they, so would you say that they loved the city, but hate what it was becoming or had became? Uh, maybe. I think you could say that. I think it's probably a little bit more complicated because I'm sure even before San Francisco became what it was, it was already probably not, that great not as great as you know people might want to say so i suspect that there's some of that but i think there's probably a little bit more feels feels like there's probably some resonance with like if if y'all remember years ago and michelle obama got dragged because she said that you know she had never been proud of her country before i feel like that feeling that you were just sort of describing or that that concept of loving it but also hating it applies to the city applies kind of to the country for a lot of black folks too like I love this country, but I also hate this country because I can see all the things it could be that it's not, right? It's not necessarily about what it's become all the time. Sometimes it's about what it could become, but it hasn't gotten to or won't get to be in a way, too. And I kind of wonder if the part that's happening here, because within the gentrification of this movie, what's interesting is that most of the time when we talk about gentrification, we talk about a an area that's mostly inhabited, usually by black folks, but could be other kinds of minorities um, and then white folks start to move in and they, you know, fix it up. It becomes more expensive looking. We get juice bars because for some reason that's a just a mainstay of any sort of gentrified area. I don't understand it. Um, and property values go up and blah, blah, blah. And other folks get pushed out. In this case, what's interesting is that like Mont's or Jimmy spends most of his time fixing the house. Like white folks had moved in, but the area is not any nicer. No part of this movie actually shows replacing what were really crumbling older you know less taken care of spaces because folks didn't have money to do it with new shiny things like i would typically expect to see in a movie about gentrification um you don't even really see people moving in the same uh way you see there's a scene where you know an old house has been torn down and they're jackhammering and building something new on it but you didn't really see the house before that so it doesn't resonate the same way it's just the unnervingness of the change itself right as exemplified by the construction guys like jackhammering and opening the ground, but it's not really the same kind of shift into something shinier. The family that's moved into Jimmy's family's house doesn't take care of it. That's it's falling apart. He takes care of it. And so what's kind of interesting is that it still kind of plays the notion of gentrification. It talks about the displacement of first the Asian population that lived in the city and then the black population that lived in the city, but you never really see that. So you don't actually get to necessarily more in the passing of it the same way Jimmy does. You have to live it through Jimmy. And for Jimmy, it feels more about his family than it does about the gentrification of his area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I definitely agree. I think that there's there's two pieces of the themes that are uh, that speak to me a lot. That last scene with uh, in uh, near the end of the movie on the bus where Jimmy says, you know, you can't, you don't get to hate it unless you love it. Pretty much the... the I finally found a one-sentence description for my relationship with my home of Detroit. 
Um, <laughs> and I will fiercely defend it to the end. And nobody can really talk bad about it except for me uh, and people who, who have lived there. And I think that there is a real sense of ownership of, of a community that, that has Jimmy and the other people who are rendered in this movie as San Franciscans that is different than how we see the, there, there actually are some places where we see some of the gentrification bits, but it's not in the typical things like the houses. The, there's a scene with Jimmy at the bus stop with a naked cowboy. Or no, well, it wasn't the naked cowboy. The naked cowboy is a New York staple. Um, <laughs> although he was once arrested in San Francisco, um, cause he, yeah, brought his act cross country. Um, anywho, um, the, you got the sense sitting there that watching this naked man put, you know, uh, a seat protector down on the bus, on, on the bus stop before he sits down, you know, was very much he is part of the San Francisco that, you know, that older San Francisco. And he talks to Jimmy and like, they, they are, they're both very much of a certain time and place of the city. And then a trolley rolls up with a bunch of tech startup bro looking folks, you know, drinking on, you know, a trolley tour. And they all just go like, Hey, basically like, Hey, look at the weird weirdo, you know, like, look at this guy. And they just start chanting. And, um, it was that for me that was the gentrification moment more so i was expecting it to be uh and now they've come and taken the house it was that it was the hey look at the weirdos here isn't san francisco weird you know like you know we're all software developers who you know who come down here you know we're we're, we're here to enjoy the weirdness that that part was the part that hit me in terms of gentrification more than anything else i think that the uh, the other thing that we've talked about a little bit was about the the stories we tell ourselves kind uh you know focus in Jimmy's tied up in the story that he the the, the story about his family that, you know being attached to it his like Mont is you know is is trying to capture and tell you know a unique story of his own um in the discussion with his grandfather early on you see him you know na- like describing what's happening on on TV you, you can get the sense that together they spend a lot of time breaking down and analyzing scenes and everything else. And so having an actual story to tell himself, because we don't know too much about what Mont's likes and dislikes are or what he likes to do, because we only see him in observer mode. Like that, that, that very much felt like, you know, this is a story, like Mont's getting to finally tell us what he, what he sees. Um, and a lot of the other characters, I feel like are, you know, they all have their own, um, their own take on, on what's going on. And, there's no real villains in this movie. There's not like a single person who's like all who, who's this person is entirely in the wrong or entirely bad. Um, the tough members of the Greek chorus have, you know, tears and regret uh, when their friend passes away. You know, Jimmy's father is talked about as, you know, an old junkie, but also you see him hustling. You also see him coming in with reverence, um, you know, wearing his old suit. You get, you get to see dimensions of everyone that, that gives them some softness. And I think that that's part of part of the story that the movie is telling is that like even though all these characters in this in in the story are moving some of them are moving across purposes, some of them are background pieces of the story, but all of them have depth and in some change, even when they are only briefly in the story. Jimmy's mother is there for I think only one scene and but you get mm-hmm. a sense even from that short scene and from the discussion she's having on the phone and from the way that Jimmy looks at her because the camera takes a, a first-person perspective from Jimmy's uh, seat on the bus. That you know that, that it's it's, comp- it's trying to complicate the the easy narrative you would tell yourself about any particular character. And I think that's actually one of the things that we did well. Uh, yeah, the the stories we tell ourselves when we get a little bit into the spoilers um, for this movie, I think, is a very interesting kind of point, interesting component of this movie, but. Going back to what you said earlier, Ryan, about the trolley and the bus stop and the whole that whole deal, that scene basically like encapsulated all of my feelings about the gentrification of Nashville, which is where I'm from, in like just a few minutes. Um, and in that, as well as a few other small things, I think is what really makes me like this movie, even given some of its like structural problems is that it really nails home a lot of feelings that I have had about what my hometown has been going through 
and is effectively transitioned through at this stage parts of Nashville that would have been considered, you know, the home for blues and country and rock and roll are now what is uh, effectively considered um, bridesmaid way. There's there's bachelor and bachelorette parties every day um, in a town in a section of town that was really had some interesting history behind it um, that just got absorbed by uh, bars and party uh, bicycle powered booze buses and all kinds of other little th- knickknacks and things that really tells a different story of what Nashville is today versus what Nashville was even just 10 years ago. So uh, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting how well they were able to capture I think some of my personal feelings along that way. Okay, well, I think that um, we're going to mark this as a spoiler point because I think we talked about everything that we can talk about without um, getting into that part of the plot. So if you're at this part of the episode and don't want to hear, here's your chance to bail out and go watch The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's available on Amazon Prime. Um, they're not paying me, though, so maybe we should cut that out. Um, <laughs> uh, um, it's Or maybe they will pay you. Uh, ooh, yeah. You hear that, Amazon? <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. Uh, um, I think that um, spoiler spoiler territory. One of the biggest turning points in the movie is around Kofi, a member of our our sad Greek chorus, um, who stands on the corner. He's clearly someone who is softer and more sensitive than a lot of the other folks he's running with. And in the early parts of the movie, he's being constantly yelled at and jeered to toughen him up, and we have a moment where Kofi comes and Mont invites Kofi to the house in one of the, when looking back at the movie, that's one of the most surprising things that happened. I, isn't, I, I just wasn't expecting that to be his guest. But he comes in, he sits down, he looks up and he goes like, this is all you guys? And you, you see him start to interact in a way, you know, differently than when he's away from the crew. And you find out that he and Jimmy have all this backstory and they've, you know, they were together in the group home and that, you know, Kofi used to look out for him, and Mont brought him in, and he's, like, clearly writing the play with Kofi in mind. And I don't know what the ending Mont originally had for the his play would have been, but the next time they see Kofi with the our, our Greek chorus, hoodlums, they're, um, uh, they're, they're, they're talking, they're, they're trying to toughen him up, up, toughen him up again, and all of a sudden Kofi finds his voice and starts, um, Taking it out on Jimmy, he actually starts attacking uh, Jimmy verbally and saying a whole lot of just really messed up things to get to him because that's something that renders his toughness um, differently to that crew and makes him sound more accepted and that he's not somebody who would run from an opposing crew that was coming through. It's the last thing we hear from him um, because the next time we, um, we we see them, we find out that Kofi's been murdered. Um that he was killed by some um, some folks running from the other side of the bay, and that in you know and there being a tense moment where Jimmy goes to confront the other people at the on the corner, and you think that there's about to be come to blows or come to a fight, and it turns into turns turns to Gunna, one of the other guys sobbing in sobbing in his arms because they you know they've lost a friend, and you see all of them actually break down in tears. I thought it was one of the more poignant moments of the movie. I thought that it really kind of, I think that was where the plot, I think, started to actually move in a way where it felt like it had been stuck in, stuck in the mud for a bit. I'm curious what you all think about things from that point on. Uh, That scene, the Kofi's path through this movie, I think really messed me up in some ways because I, I had friends that were like that, um, where, you know, when we were together, we were super cool. We were super close, but like I wasn't the tough person or, or whatever. And then when I would see them in certain groups, the behavior would be different. And I'm sure I was probably like that too. But I had a lot of friends that were in that sort of same situation. And so that felt very personal to me, um, especially given, you know, the fact that he was murdered partway through the movie. I did not expect that. And so uh, I was caught very off guard and and sort of on the defensive at that point, trying to figure out like, okay, is this like the emotional turn for the movie? Which I would say it's, it's not really given some other things that happen later, but 
yeah, that one was really, I thought, very good for me. Yeah, I will say, like, I, I would love, and it's just a general note to Hollywood, I would love a movie in which a group of black guys gets all the way through to the end of the movie without one of them being shot and killed. That said, I understand reality, but that would be nice at some point. But in this case, um, I do think it was, like, a catalyst that moved things forward. It was, for me, really heartbreaking when Kofi sort of turns on Jimmy and Mont, and particularly Jimmy, because they had such a nice moment where they're, like, in the sauna together, hanging out, just sort of chilling and not judging each other or being, like, worried about how tough they are, but just enjoying a nice, relaxing evening. And then, you know, the next day he turns around and tries to stay face in front of his friends and basically just, like, pushes them off a cliff. And we've all kind of had that moment at some point in your childhood, a friend turned on you to be cool to somebody else, and that was really, really heartbreaking. Um, I do think that his death led to, obviously, the play being finished and presented, and that play was amazing. But it also had some of the best lines that came out of Mont's mouth the entire movie. And one of the things he says when he's in just almost, I would describe as like full-on black creature mode, I think, in this particular part of the scene. And he says, you know, the world put him in a box and he never pushed beyond it. Let us break the boxes. Let us give each other the courage to see beyond the stories we were born into, as he's describing Kofi. And it was, I think, really the, that's why for me, the issue of identity is the biggest theme, because that comes through so strongly for each of those characters. But it's like exemplified in what happens to Kofi. Like he lashed out at the people that were nicest to him because he felt like he was put in a box where he couldn't be anything else. Right. He had to be this tough guy who like rags and other guys that are different. He couldn't just be like a nice guy who happened to have some friends that were maybe a little odd or things like that. He couldn't be perceived as being feminine. He couldn't be perceived as being anything beyond the box that society told him he was supposed to be in. And that's where he basically stayed. And that's what gets him killed in the end. Right. Like it doesn't do anything for him, but get him killed. And the fact that Mont recognizes that and Mont himself doesn't exist in a really clear box either like recognizes that and talks about that and encourages folks to move beyond that, I think was like the best line of the whole film. I know for me personally, my favorite part of the movie, this is going to sound kind of silly, was when Mont revisited the house after Jimmy had to move out and get all of, uh, all of the old furniture out. One, because it was interesting to look at the house with all the old uh, wallpaper and painting and uh all the older furniture where it seemed like oh yeah this place has a bit of character to it yeah it looks kind of like your you know grandparents home but again it was the uh it was jimmy's granddad's furniture and then you compare that compare that to the newer more modern stuff where it's more you know plain walls this sleek you know furniture and for some reason it didn't fit as a viewer like none of that stuff fit and especially when he, uh mine goes up to the library and scares those two people <laughs> that was amazing. uh it, like like seeing those two people just kind of browsing the house and then like standing in this you know great library and thinking about how the house used to look versus how the house looks now like nothing seemed quite right and then also thinking back about that, how different the lighting was in the house. Uh, when we are with it most of the movie, it's very dark. But at the end, is a lot more light. It felt like something was lost for me. And I felt like that's kind of what the second half of the movie was going for. Was that like something is lost here? Other than the innocence of Jimmy and his dream after he's uh, conflicted with the harsh reality that like he can't have his dream home. And not just that he can't have his dream home, but his dream home's history isn't what his family told him that it was. That like Mont finds out that, you know, talking to our favorite sleazy realtor actually shows him the deed and the deed clearly goes back a hundred years before. This is actually thoughtfully lampshaded in the beginning of the movie. Jimmy has a soliloquy, where he's standing on the balcony of the house talking to a group of tourists on segways, which again, really, that, that, that's one of the gentrification points that hits really hard is like when all of a sudden there's white people in your neighborhood on bikes or segways. Um, that's one of the things where like my parents will just call me and say, 
we, you know, like your cousin saw a bunch of white people biking down Linwood. Um, <laughs> oh, and, and, like, and we know what that means. And we know like that, that, that itself is more the gentrification than the juice bar. Like before you can have the juice bar, you have to have the bikers. Well, they got to be biking somewhere. So I think they come as a package. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and they're giving an architecture tour and they're going like, oh yeah, look at this, you know, beautiful house. It's clearly built in the 19th century. Um, and Jimmy says, no, this is built by my grandfather. And you, you know, at, at first it's a thing that I only got that far on my rewatch. Um, but it, it very much is, a you know, the story that he tells himself is so strong. And there's a line in the, uh, near the end of the movie where he says, I told this so much. I almost forgot. It wasn't true that like really hinted that like J that Jimmy knew at some point that this, the story his father told him about the house, um, you know, the, the house's history wasn't true, but he needed it to be true so badly that he was willing to just kind of suppress that and keep going because he didn't have anything else to go for. And that is like one of the most heartbreaking parts of it was not, not him finding out that it wasn't true, but, or being confronted with it, but him realize like him knowing that it wasn't true and still fighting that hard was just incredibly sorrowful. Great. Yeah. I, so one of the things that I felt really early on in the movie was that I felt like I was being robbed of the house a little bit just from the very beginning. Um, and my interpretation was everything that happens in this movie is about the house. It's in, around, or about the house in some way, um, indirectly. But you don't really get to see a lot of the house, one, early on at all, and, and even through the rest of the movie. You, don't, you only see the house in bits and pieces. Like, I don't feel like I have a clear view as to the layout of the house or any of the details of the house. And in most cases, when you've got an object like that, that is essentially like the focus of a person's dreams or fantasy, films like lavish a lot of attention on it, right? Think about the, um, or the Murder on the Orient Express, right? The train as a character in the movie and the train gets a lot of attention. Like the camera lingers on the details of the trim and like the furniture and all these things. And it didn't really do this in this movie. You got a few shots of the rooms, you know, in the first half of the movie when, when Jimmy's sort of like sneaking around the house and fixing things or when he eventually moves in. But you don't really get to actually like see a lot of the detail of the house and what makes it really great. It's kept as a mystery. And at first it annoyed me because I was like, I don't know why I don't get to, why don't I get to see the house and more of the house and fall in love with it the same way that Jimmy has? Because I don't currently, it's great. It's a beautiful house. But I'm not... Here, I'm not currently being introduced to it the same way. Over time, like it became clear that the house is more of a metaphor for Jimmy's story. And in some ways, the same way that the movie slowly reveals to you more about Jimmy's background and the fact that the house isn't his, it starts to reveal more of the house in little bits and pieces. You get to see the sauna and the library and, you know, all these other pieces and things. But you still never get a lot of it. And half the time, the house is in darkness, right? It's dark out. They don't have a lot of lights. It's not necessarily daytime. You're not getting bigger sweeping views of the, the landscape. And I think at the end, what it, what it occurred to me is that it's because like the house doesn't belong to me. The house doesn't belong to Jimmy, right? The house, it doesn't even really matter if the house is actually as wonderful as, as they say it is because it, it doesn't belong to him. And so I don't get to see it because he doesn't get to have it. And at the end, when, you know, he's been forced out and they're showing the house to all these other people and the house is actually like, it's bright and you can see everything. And I'm like, oh, well, this is nice. This is great, but it, it lacked the mystery at that point. And it certainly lacked the promise that it definitely held for Jimmy when, you know, it was dark and he was just sort of like running around the house, yelling at the top of his lungs or like hang out with his friends in the sauna doing all those things. Like it was never the same house. It was a house I would expect to exist in San Francisco in a neighborhood like that. But it wasn't the same one. So it was interesting the way that that became used as a way to make me feel the way Jimmy feels where I just, it's not mine. I don't get to have it, but I really wanted more of it. And then I just end up feeling disappointed about the house. The reveal of the, you know, the house's history, not being what we portrayed. I did not anticipate that because I had like 10,000% bought into the idea that Jimmy's grandfather built this house. And this movie was going to be about, a black man reclaiming what he what was his and like the whole arc of the movie I expected to be. Oh, he's like, we're going to see him go through the process of getting back this house that like is his family's house. 
And I was like 10,000% in. And so when that comes crashing down, like I, w- I didn't really know like what I was going to do as a viewer and like how I was going to be interacting with the rest of this movie after what I kind of expected to be the arc of the movie just completely fall apart. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe like this isn't the story that I thought it was going to be. And it, it imminently reminded me of something that I had completely forgotten about until I watched this movie. When I was a kid, I had convinced myself somehow that my grandmother owned a copy of like one of the original run of the X-Men comic that she had in a safe. And I, I remember this very clearly now that I... Some friends of mine had some sort of thing that their family had inherited that was super cool that, of course, my family didn't have because generational wealth didn't, doesn't really exist for black people in the same way. And so I told my friends that my grandmother had this super old, super rare comic in this safe in her bedroom, and it was just the coolest thing. And I told them that story so many times that at one point I was like, wait, does she actually have that in her house? And, like, at one point, my dad actually opened the safe that was in my grandmother's room to get some stuff out, and I was expecting to see the comic book. I was like, oh, wait, yeah, like, that wasn't real. I made all that up. And then, like, this brought that all back to me crystal clear in a way that I kind of never expected. Yeah, that's, I guess for me, like, that's part of the reason why I feel the movie was, it felt like two different movies being shown to me at once. Where that first hour, up until uh, Kofi visits the house, is very dreamlike, and there's this clear like redemption type of a feel to it. And then as soon as Kofi got introduced and we understood more about Jimmy, all of a sudden it just everything just went really sad. And that, I guess that's one of the things I didn't like about it was that it's just how the movie just changed in the middle, just completely changed uh, tone off of that one sequence. Speaking of things you may not have liked, I have one question for all of you, which is, what do you think the end of the movie signifies? Oh, is this like Inception with the top? What happens to Jimmy (laughs) at the end of the movie? This is like Inception with the top. (laughs) That movie ruined my film school education. (laughs) The movie ruined a lot of people's film school education. (laughs) The end of the movie, um, and with Jimmy um, rowing out to the rowing out to the sea um, in the bay was very much ridiculously sad. It, it was very much the I I had the same thought of the elves leaving Middle Earth um, from Lord of the Rings. Um, it was like like the time the time the, like the, the the time of elves is over. The time of black black people in San Francisco is over. We must now you know go into the mists. This is like, and I, so I guess I was gonna like, but, but where is he going to go? It's not Oakland. That's just fine too. <laughs> um, and so I, I mean, there's the the farewell note that he leaves for leaves for Mont was the thing that was that like actually made me like really sad. A because you know I like I don't I don't know what the intentions were, but I certainly read some like unrequited love in between like Mont and Jimmy, and so. You know, all cast best friend is, you know, rough. But also that, you know, just being able to to know that, like, no matter what happens with Jimmy, it's not here. Like, you know, it, like, no matter what happens, he's gone. And then San Francisco is never, like, there's no coming back. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I felt about it. Um, also, apparently he didn't know how to row when they shot that scene. So they shot that scene last, and they and he was just rowing in a circle for a while um, <laughs> uh, until he figured out how to row in real time. So that that's at least some bit of the only bit of levity I can get from that scene now is um, knowing that uh, that was Jimmy Wales' first time trying to row a boat, um, was shooting the finale of his you know motion picture debut. I didn't expect this, them to show Jimmy again. Like once we got the the note. I thought he he was going to be gone from the movie from that point forward. So it was interesting that they did go back to to show him on the boat. But um, I got the same sort of feeling that you got, Ryan, and that, that what they're trying to tell us is that San Francisco is not for black people anymore. And that like this, his experience and his exodus is 
sort of like the abandoning of the city by those that maybe are most connected to it. I don't know exactly what that might signify or anything, but that that's sort of the feeling I got from it uh, as I was seeing him row to what I assumed was nowhere. Yeah, there, there's a there's a link there with um his skateboard that I I you know, I forgot to bring up earlier and probably will not remember properly, but you know when he when he finds out about getting locked back out of the house and stuff being thrown out. He breaks his skateboard, which very much feels like Jim, the representative of Jimmy's youth and innocence. And it's like, yeah, you know, like without Jimmy's skateboard, where, you know, without his, without the house, without the skateboard, where does Jimmy go? And there's nothing left but going into the bay. Yeah. And that was one of the things I was getting ready to bring up was it felt like there was kind of this weird symbolic, like commentary about him maturing and sort of moving uh, past his more childish or fantastical ideals. But what struck me most about that scene wasn't Jimmy, it was Mont, and everything we saw of Mont before going into it was like, oh, well, now his friend's alone. And although Mont had more like happiness given his relationship with his uh, grandfather, Jamie just kind of didn't have anything else other than Mont. It seemed like it left them both in this weird, uh, like this weird, uh, depressive state where it's just kind of like two people that drifted apart that don't really know what's next. I mean, I will say, like, I plus on all those thoughts. My other much darker interpretation of this is because anytime you have someone in a film, who rows away into the fog. They, it's a you know metaphor for suicide. So the other dark way to take this is that Jimmy kills himself and Mont actually is alone. Like the, the initial thought I had after seeing that last scene where there's the montage, like Andre just mentioned, of Mont doing all the things he, they would have done together and then standing on the shore and seeing Jimmy basically like rowing away despite the fact that the time of day is different, that there's no way you could have seen Jimmy, that it's weird to just be rowing a boat out there for no reason um, in the fog and whatnot was me like seeing Mont imagine Jimmy being free in that way, the way that you do if someone has like died. And Jimmy's note to Mont is, I'm sorry, I couldn't say goodbye. Not I'm leaving San Francisco. Not I hope to see you again someday. It's very definitive in the way that typically people would write like a suicide note. So one of my like interpretations of this is that it's really, he couldn't handle that piece anymore. And he didn't have any place to go. And since he didn't have any place to go, this is sort of what happens, right? Like, this is what people get led to because everything else has abandoned them. And so it's terrible for Jimmy because he didn't have any real help left. And it's horrible for Mont because now he just has the memory of what he used to have with a person that he clearly loved and cared about. Yeah, I think that that with that, um, I was one, that was one of the things I was thinking about as well, especially with the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. Mm-hmm. And how that bridge has a pretty dark uh, history when it comes to suicide. On that fun note. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. No more. Yeah, but, uh, but I, mean, I think that the movie, uh, the movie accomplished some of the things that it was trying to set out. Um, it definitely had some issues, but for a debut film, it was really impressive. And I'm glad I, I'm, I'm glad that um, this podcast gave me a reason to sit down and watch it. So thank you all, because I think that one of the, the reasons that I decided to join in with you all for this podcast was that without prompting, I was going to have a hard time watching movies like this on my own because I'm sad enough on my own. And so like trying to figure out how to get get more good films in is always running up against things. But. I definitely am really interested to see what comes next from these creators and uh, to definitely be willing to watch pretty much anything that Jonathan Majors decides to act in again. Okay, um, so I think that's all. So let's wrap it up. Thank you all for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Do we know which movie we have coming up next? Because I do not. Uh, next movie is Head of State. A stunning departure from this film. 
I had just watched that movie on Saturday, not knowing that that was the next movie we were going to do. <laughs> was it because you didn't know? Is it because you just watch it every Saturday? Is that what's really happening here? Because that was also your recommendation, as I recall, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. it, okay. it was completely coincidental. I swear. I swear. <laughs> yeah. And if you haven't had a chance, you know, our first episode covers Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with Miles Morales. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I'm murdering. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the trinity. Good people, weed and memories. These are the only things I need.